Well, we do live in a in a world with a lot of darkness, a lot of messed up people, don't we? Everywhere we go, in fact, we're surrounded by people. Um, and a lot of them are hurting. There are a lot of confused people in this world, angry people, depressed, lonely, and sometimes fearful. And it's thinking about this uh, this week, why? Why are they hurting? Why are people so confused and angry and depressed and lonely and and fearful it's because they're lost have you ever been lost before we were all lost of course before we found our way in Christ but for some of us I know that for me sometimes I've been following him for so long that I think sometimes we forget what it was like before we started our journey with him so just humor me for a minute let's think for just a minute about the last time you were lost I was doing that this week. Maybe you were driving somewhere you'd never been before. Um, Maybe you were hiking in the woods. I've been lost in the woods more than once. Maybe uh, I've been in buildings. You ever done that? You've been in a building so big? I got separated from my family one time and I couldn't find them very easily. It was before cell phones. Have you ever been lost in a, a foreign country or lost at sea or on a large body of water? If you've ever been lost... You know what happens when you can't find your way. It's unnerving, isn't it? It's unnerving. It's unsettling. It can be scary. It's easy uh, in that moment to become confused and, and even angry and lonely and depressed. When I was living in Alaska, I was uh, going on a hunting trip one morning with my friend Jason. And many of you actually have met Jason. He came here and spoke. Big, long beard, big, burly Alaskan guy and we were good friends we still are and he and I planned to go on a combination caribou moose hunting trip we hunted together a lot so we loaded up my four-wheeler I had a Polaris Ranger this big huge side-by-side looks like a a golf cart on steroids this big mean looking thing and we loaded up all our hunting equipment and we put it on a trailer behind my truck and we drove on a dirt road out into the mountains until the road gave out And we offloaded the four-wheeler, and we went 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 miles back into the mountains. We were deep into the mountains. We left at 3 in the morning because it was going to be a day hunt. And so brilliant me didn't pack any overnight equipment because it was just going to be a day trip. So we had guns and, and things for skinning animals and meat packs, but we didn't really have any camping gear, which in Alaska is really stupid, by the way, if you ever go there. You're going to go out into the woods in Alaska. You pretty much always need to take extra stuff with you. But we didn't. And we were literally on the peak of a mountaintop. And uh, Jason said, you know, we'd better turn around. Because at this point, if we're going to get back by daylight, we weren't following established trails the whole time. We'd better start heading back now. So we did. And as I made a U-turn in the four-wheeler, both right tires drove over a jagged rock sticking out of the ground and the sidewalls were slashed in an instant and both tires went completely flat. And there we were, 60 miles not including what we'd driven in the truck deep in the Alaskan mountains with two flat tires. No spare, no tire plug kit. It was a brand new machine. Why would I need tools, right? (laughs) And we were stuck. And I'm telling you, there was an, an immediate sense of panic. 
in me. I felt it, and I was fighting it back, trying to suppress it, because I knew we were potentially in a lot of trouble. It gets really, really cold in Alaska at night, and we weren't prepared for that. And so we were sort of uh, coming a little bit unglued. We're trying to keep our cool and not pretend like we were afraid, but we were talking about what to do, and we looked up and we saw a train of uh, other four-wheelers, other hunters on the next mountain ridge over, which is a long way away. And I just, in sort of the panic, I pulled my revolver. I have a 454 Kasul. It's like a cannon that I carried on my chest every time I went outside because of the bears. And I pulled that off, and I just turned my head, no hearing protection, and I fired that thing off to try and alert them and nearly ruptured my eardrum. And they just kept going. They, they didn't hear us at all. Hearing a shot in the mountains of Alaska is not uncommon. So now my whole head is throbbing. I can't hear. I'm getting nauseous because I guess the whole equilibrium thing. I'm really <laughs> kind of out of sorts. And we're standing there no, no better off. And so trying to figure out what to do, we took all of our equipment and we slid it to one side of the four-wheeler where the, where the tires were still inflated and strapped it down. And we decided we would try to drive out of there until the rubber literally came off the wheels and then we'd stop wherever we were and try and make a shelter and figure out our next move. And so we slid everything to one side to put all the weight on the one side and I sat in the driver's seat and Jason slid over right up against me. You ever see the guys going down the road in the big pickup trucks with the girlfriend next to him? <laughs> That's pretty much what we looked like but my girlfriend had a big full beard and hair on his chest. So, so anyway, there we are, the most ridiculous scene, and we're, we're barely moving along, and we're driving down the trail and through the woods and up and over these mountains, and we're going and going and going, and it gets dark pretty quick, and we're lost. We're in the middle of nowhere, and we're driving, just pushing ahead in the general direction with a compass that we knew we needed to go. But a lot of those mountain ranges are impassable if you don't know where you're going. We didn't know where we were going. It was nighttime. Finally, to make a long story short, we looked off in the next valley over, and I saw a flicker of light, a small campfire. So we started to drive toward it. And in Alaska, you don't just walk into someone's camp at night. You can get shot. So we stopped well back, and we yelled out for permission to come into their camp, and they told us we could. And we walked in, and there are two old guys uh, out there with camping supplies for a month. They go out at one month every year, these two guys, to the same spot, and they camp and they hunt. And so I told them the whole predicament, and I said, look, uh, if we could just lay here next to your fire tonight and sleep, and we'll keep the fire going, we won't bother you, won't eat any of your food. If you'll just let us sleep here to stay warm, we'll get up in the morning and we'll, we'll work our way out. And he said, well, why don't you bring that four-wheeler over here and let me look at it? I said, hey, you know, it's not going to do any good. The sidewalls are slashed. He said, that's fine. Just bring it into camp and let me look at it. So I did. I drove it in there. And this guy starts pulling out a tire plug kit. And I said, sir, the sidewalls are slashed. You, you can't plug a tire on the sidewall. It's, it doesn't work that way. And he looked at me. And he said, I hear you. And he starts cutting off plugs and putting epoxy and shoving those things down in the, in the holes. And I said, hey, I appreciate the effort, but it seems like we're just wasting your... And he looked at me and said, why don't you shut up? <laughs> Sit over there by the fire and let me work. And I said, yes, sir. And I sat down and shut my mouth and he went to work. And this old dude, 
It was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. When he was done, there were like little plugs, if you've seen them, sticking out of the sides of the tires with epoxy all over them. And he put five pounds of pressure in each tire. And he said to me, which I didn't know, he said, you know, these four-wheeler tires run on very low pressure, or they can. So he put five pounds of pressure in each tire. And he said, now here, he drew us a map. Here's where you're going. You'll see this peak and this. And if you, you're welcome to stay, but you can drive out if you want. You got about 20 more miles. And we did. We drove out of there that night, all the way back to the truck, and drove the, the four-wheeler up onto the trailer. And when I ratcheted it down, boom, boom, both tires blew out. And we drove back in the wee hours of the morning. But I vividly remember having to fight back the urge the whole time to panic because of the sense of fear and uncertainty. You know, it was almost overwhelming at times. And we were in a pretty serious predicament. We didn't have clear direction. We were lost. And not only did we not know which way to go, but we weren't sure what to do next to improve our situation. That affects, uh, that affects your mind. It affects the way that you think, and it affected our decision-making and our state of mind for sure. Can you think about a time when you were lost and how you felt? Apply those feelings to most of the people that you encounter every day who are spiritually lost and hurting. It's no wonder uh, the world can be such a cruel place because it's full of people who are making decisions under duress or fear or anger, confusion and depression and loneliness. And typically, people make bad decisions when they're lost. And here we are, uh, the church, this amazing community of people, and we have the answer. We have the directions for the lost people to be found because we know the way. It's the only way to fulfillment and happiness and contentment and purpose and peace. The Bible calls it good news, right? The Greek word in scripture for gospel is evangelion, which is translated literally as good news. And as adequate as that word may have been in the first century to describe the gospel, and I was thinking about this this week, I think because of our sort of excessive abuse of the English language in our culture, good news hardly seems compelling to me anymore, does it? In fact, we, we live in a society where everything is exciting and awesome and amazing and wonderful and on and on. And, and lest I make you feel bad, I'll be the first to admit that the greatest offenders in using language to overstate everything are preachers. It's like an art form for us. Right? So I'm thinking about today's message, which is really a discussion about the gospel. And I couldn't bring myself to simply entitle this sermon, The Good News, as that seemed somehow deficient. And so as we continue today to work our way through the book of Acts in our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, we're going to finish chapter 10 today in a message that I've entitled The Greatest Story Ever. Because not only does it sound a lot better than just saying good news, but it's also true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, and it's also the greatest story of all time. And we're keepers of that story. It's been entrusted to us like a rare jewel, you know, that has the potential to meet all the needs of all humanity. It's a story that conveys the greatest truth of our entire existence. And so my hope today is that by sort of honing in on this gospel, we will garner a new level of uh, maybe awe and wonderment at the beauty and the worth of the truth that we possess. And also the gravity of the responsibility that we carry as keepers representatives of this gospel message that can guide those who are lost 
to the one true way, Jesus Christ himself, okay? So let's turn to Acts chapter 10, and we'll pick up the story where we left off last week. We actually read through verse 35, I think, last Sunday, but we'll start from 34 because it sort of sets up what's getting ready to happen. Now remember, Peter, at this point, has defied every cultural convention of his time at this point in the narrative by entering the house of an unclean, uncircumcised Gentile, a Roman soldier at that, and he's about to do the unthinkable. He's going to share the gospel, uh, this most astounding news, with a Gentile and his entire family in attendance because the Lord has shown him that all people, not just the Hebrew people, are now included in this redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And so as we pick up our story here in chapter 10, we begin to understand uh, the promise of the gospel. And I'm going to speed pretty quickly through these first two points in the message and then we'll, we'll camp out a little bit for a few minutes on the last. All right, but we're under, we begin to understand as we read here the promise of the gospel, namely that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. That's the promise. It's no longer limited to a select few based on ethnicity or, or by following a set of ceremonial mandates. The promise of the gospel is now being extended to all of mankind. So let's read it together. Acts chapter 10, uh, starting on verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we're witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear not to all of the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Okay, so Peter shares the story of Christ with Cornelius and his family here. And he, he clearly spells out to them three sort of points in verse 35 in reference to this gospel message. We don't want to miss that. The first is that the gospel now applies to everyone in every nation, he says. In other words, the message is no longer just for Jewish people. It's equally relevant to all people from every race, every tribe, every creed. No matter your background or upbringing, the gospel applies to everyone. And then he continues with, in every nation, anyone who fears him, right? meaning those who accept the message, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't fear God unless you believe that he is who he says he is. So the gospel is now available to anyone uh, from every nation who believes in him. And so faith is also clearly a requirement, right? A component that is required to accepting the gospel. And then as he continues, he adds one more criteria. Peter says, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. All right? We talked about this last week. There's a difference between simply believing in Jesus and following Jesus. We do believe in him. But as Peter spells it out here, we must not only believe in him, we also have to do what is right. What does that mean? It means following Jesus. That's how we become more like him. And that's how we follow him. It's a part of following him. And a very big part of that is what we do with this new information. 
this new revelation that we have about the gospel? What do we do with this new relationship in our pursuit, our following after Jesus Christ? Because it's a whole new way of life, isn't it? As you know. So what do we do with this new life? And the answer to that is point two, our response to the gospel. All right? It, it's simply not enough for us to hear and believe. We must also do what is right according to Peter. And part of that is sharing. Now, you understand that salvation is a free gift by grace through faith. I'm not negating that. We're talking about our response to that, all right? Sharing what we have. And the next two verses in our story talk about that, probably even in more depth than most folks realize when they read through these next two verses. So let's read them together, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. Uh, Verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge the living and the dead to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Okay, so verse 43 reiterates that the gospel is for everyone. But in verse 42, Peter says that Jesus commanded them to preach to the people and to testify. So why does he say preach and testify? Isn't that the same thing? The answer is no. They're actually very different things. And it is essential to effective witnessing that we understand the difference, okay? The word preach in verse 42 is the Greek word keruso, which refers to the public proclamation of the gospel. The word testify in verse 42 is the Greek word dea martoromai, which refers to the confirmation of something. Two very different words with very different meanings. And yet in contemporary church culture, we've made them one and the same. But they're not the same. The gospel of Jesus Christ and our testimony are not the same. Uh, The gospel is a story about Jesus. Our testimony is a story about us. They're both important. They're both a part of uh, witnessing to others, to be sure. But we have to be careful That we don't fall into the habit of sharing our testimony alone and then thinking that we've shared the gospel. Okay? But that's become fairly common. I hear people share their testimony with someone and then later say something to the effect of, yeah, I I shared the gospel with that person. When actually they didn't share the gospel at all. They shared a testimony. You can share with someone that Jesus changed your life. And that is wonderful. But that is not the gospel. You can tell someone, hey, I have good news for you. God loves you. And that is really good news. But that's not the gospel. Okay? The gospel is a story specifically that informs people about who Jesus is and what he did here on earth. Our testimony brings people into that story. Our testimony makes the gospel personal and it validates or confirms the gospel through our experience. Our responsibility... As followers of Christ, our response to the gospel in our own life is to both share the gospel and to share our testimony related to the gospel. Remember, verse 42 says to preach to the people and to testify. And the order isn't important. Okay, We don't need to focus on a formula. We need to focus on the content. So you can share a testimony about what Jesus has done uh, for you first and then follow that up with the gospel, which explains why God would bother to send his son to die 
for mankind, or we can share the gospel first and then use a testimony to validate or confirm the gospel message in our own lives. The point is, our response to the gospel is to preach, which focuses on Christ, his life, death, resurrection, the the purpose of that substitutionary atonement, the forgiveness of our sins through repentance and salvation by grace through faith. All of that focuses on the person of Jesus Christ, not on us. And then what happens is for some people, that information can come across as nothing more than maybe something interesting for discussion's sake. It may not necessarily seem personal to some. It simply sounds like a a myth, uh, something historical or a religious belief without any relevant application for us today. And so when we combine that with a personal testimony, well, now all of a sudden, what may have seemed at first to be nothing more than a myth or an abstract belief now becomes a reality because the listener is drawn in to a first-hand account of that gospel at work in someone's life today. It's a a powerful combination, and it is our model for witnessing, which is why Jesus commanded it, okay? And of course, none of this, none of it, none of our preaching or testifying goes anywhere without the Holy Spirit convicting the hearts of men and women to receive that message. This is His work. That's His responsibility, not ours. Our responsibility is simply to preach the truth of the gospel And couple that with a testimony of how that gospel is working in our own lives. Okay? Now, we're going to come back to this point in reference to our response to the gospel at the end of the message in a few minutes. Because that's what our text does at the end of the chapter. Try my best to always let the scripture preach itself. So we'll follow where the chapter leads and then we're going to come back to this second point in a few minutes as we wrap up. But first let's look at one more quick aspect of the gospel outlined in the next three uh, verses, and that is the power of the gospel, okay? The gospel is powerful not because of the words. It's not some kind of magical incantation that transforms people when spoken correctly. Otherwise, everyone who ever heard the gospel would be saved, right? The power of the gospel is in the revelation of the truth about Jesus Christ. Because once that truth is heard, assuming it is received and accepted as truth by those hearing it, the door to our hearts and minds is then opened for us to believe. And of course, once we believe, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. And then we have, then we have the power of the living God living inside of us. So the power of the gospel is that our hearts and minds are exposed to the truth about who God is and what He's done for us. And once we realize and accept that truth in faith, He then works the miracle of salvation and redemption inside of us by grace through faith. So think of it like this. Uh, if, If you had a deadly disease and someone placed three glasses of liquid in front of you and said, one glass contains the cure and the other two contain poison, Knowing which of those three glasses contained the cure would be incredibly powerful information, would it not? Not because the information itself cures you. You still have to pick up the correct glass and drink the cure to be saved, right? Your your salvation lies within the cure, not within the information. 
But if you have no pathway to get to the cure for your disease, you're still dying. That's what makes the message, the information about which glass contains the cure so powerful. It allows you to then receive the salvation that you desperately need. Does that make sense? It's the same with the gospel message. The information, the revelation of the gospel is what allows us to be able to open our hearts and minds to the true salvation that comes in Christ and the subsequent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that all Christians experience. And again, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that opens our minds to even receive the gospel message. Okay, God is sovereign over everything, including our understanding and our faith for salvation. Okay, and just to further illustrate the power of the gospel, in Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to, what? Everyone who believes. In other words, the power comes once we believe in the message, because it is then that we're filled with the Spirit of the living God. And that's what we see happening here in the next three verses of our text. Let's read it, starting at verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So Peter's in the process still of sharing the gospel and his testimony with these Gentiles when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. See, they were, they were so ready to hear the truth of the gospel because the Lord was already preparing their hearts and minds to receive it even before Peter got there. That once he said enough for them to understand the truth, they were ready to receive all that God had for them. And so consequently, his spirit was poured out on them powerfully, so much so they were speaking in tongues and praising God out loud. There's power in the gospel because it reveals the truth to a world that is sick and dying. The gospel points us to the cure, which is faith in Jesus Christ, of course, and a life spent following him. Okay, now, as we finish the chapter, we're going to talk a bit more about point two in our outline, our response to the gospel. So let's read the last two and a half verses. We'll start there at the last part of 46, where we left off. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days, okay? So as these people receive salvation, they're speaking in tongues, they're praising God. And right in the thick of it, what does Peter do? He doesn't call the worship team forward to play a really cool song. He doesn't take up an offering. That would have probably been a good time to do it. But that's not what he does. He starts looking around for some water. Peter's first concern immediately after these people received their salvation in Christ was that they be baptized in water. Now look, I've been telling you I was going to talk about this. Water baptism is vitally important in our spiritual progress as followers of Christ. And it's part of our required response to the gospel. Okay? It's not required for salvation, but it is a command of Christ to all believers. And, and the apostles understood this very well. Clearly, this was a chief concern of Peter the moment these Gentiles placed their faith in Christ. But why? 
Why is water baptism so important? I'm going to explain that in just a minute. But first, lest you think this was some kind of isolated incident, I just want to take a very fast appraisal of what we've already learned about water baptism in the book of Acts. Okay, so real quick, Acts 2, 40 and 41. As Peter preaches to the crowds, it says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 8.12, as Philip preaches to the Samaritans, it says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Acts chapter 8, 36 through 38, as Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch as they were going along the road, it says, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Acts 9, 17 through 19, after Saul is blinded on the road to Damascus, after not having anything to eat or drink for three days, it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, meaning Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off of his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose, and he ate a big meal, and he visited some friends, and he... No, that's not what it says. That's not what it says at all. It says, then he rose and was baptized. And then, taking some food, he was strengthened. He hasn't eaten or, or had anything to drink for three days. But he, he, he's sure to be baptized before he eats or drinks anything. What's the common denominator between each of these instances and that of the conversion of Cornelius and his family? They were all baptized immediately after conversion. Why? Because the apostles understood the imperative nature of this command by Jesus himself in Matthew 28, 19, that we go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. By the way, that's what it means to make disciples. And we'll talk about that another day. Evangelism is one little tiny part of making disciples. It's an important part. But, but the Great Commission isn't just about evangelism, okay? It's a lot more than that. We'll talk about that later. These were Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. And they certainly understood the gravity of the command to make disciples and baptize them. But why? Why is baptism so important? Because it is one of the only things that we do as believers that conveys both the preaching of the gospel and our testimony all in the same act. You see, when you're lowered into that water, you are a representation of the death of Christ. When you're under the water, you're a representation of the burial of Jesus Christ and his time in that tomb. And when you come up out of that water, you are a representation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, when you're baptized, you're dramatically preaching the gospel of Jesus to anyone who's watching, but that's not all. Because not only are you a representation of Christ at baptism, you're also identifying yourself with him at baptism, and that is your testimony. As you're lowered into that water, you're testifying to everyone present that you died with Christ. And as you're under that water, you're testifying that you've been buried with Christ. Christ. 
And as you come up out of that water, you're testifying that you've been raised with Christ. And by the way, as you're raised up out of that water and all the water's pouring off of your body, that testifies that you've been washed clean of all of your sin. Can you grasp the power and significance of this act of water baptism? When we're baptized, we preach the gospel and we testify to its impact in our life in a, a penetratingly descriptive drama that unfolds before the eyes of everyone watching without you even having to say a word. It's incredibly powerful. That is why Jesus commanded it. And that is why those early Christians immediately sought it after conversion because it was the most effective way for them to both share with whoever was there what God had done for all of humanity and to celebrate what he was doing for them personally in that moment. And yet somehow in our modern church age, we've sort of relegated water baptism to an awkward ceremony that we try to get to once or twice a year like something to check off the list of things that we should do as good Christians. And I think that maybe we've lost some of that sense of awe and privilege and urgency that these early believers had, the, the pressing need that they felt to be baptized. It is one of the most beautifully profound acts that we can ever perform as followers of Christ. And it is one of the most effective ways that we can share the greatest story ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone asked me recently, she said, is it a sin for a believer to not be baptized? The answer is yes, it is. Yes, it most certainly is. Won't keep you out of heaven. But we're acting in willful disobedience when we refuse to be baptized because it's a command of Jesus himself to all of his disciples worldwide. And anytime we disobey a command of the Lord, that is a sin. The meaning of the word sin in the Bible is literally translated to miss the mark. What's the mark? The mark is the perfection of Jesus Christ by honoring his commands and living by his example. And so all believers, all followers of Christ are commanded by God to be water baptized. Therefore, anyone who's never been baptized obviously should be, but not until they're of age to fully understand this purpose and the ramifications of water baptism, which means if you were baptized as a baby or a young child and maybe you didn't yet fully understand why you were baptized, or for that matter, as an adult, maybe at that point in your walk with Christ, you didn't have a complete understanding of the gospel presented and the depth of the testimony that occurs at water baptism. If you fall into any of those categories, and you want to honor the command of Jesus Christ, then you should be water baptized, whether for the first time or not. I was baptized as a baby, and then again at 18 years old, once I really understood what it meant. And so I'm asking you, uh, as your pastor and someone who loves you intensely, to please consider signing up for water baptism in the cafe today. Uh, as we're going to be celebrating that on September 14th, right after the morning service. It's vitally important to your walk with Christ, okay? We're surrounded by people who are spiritually sick and dying. People who desperately need a cure. 
And we possess the information that they need to make the right choice. The choice that will lead them to salvation and, and healing and restoration. And that is the promise of the gospel for everyone who chooses to believe and follow Christ. The power of the gospel is the power of God, His Spirit taking up residence in the life of every believer. And our response to that gospel is how it spreads. Our response to the gospel is vital if all those hurting people around us are to ever experience true hope and healing. In fact, the baptism service is a wonderful time to invite friends and family who are not following Christ because of the testimony. And I will, as the pastor, I'll explain what's going on before we do it. There has never been a greater responsibility given to mankind than the stewardship of this message. It's the greatest story ever. Okay, and so to close this service today, and Jonathan, if you'll come, um, we've talked about preaching and testifying. We've talked about a water baptism, and there's another great dramatic act that we're commanded to continue as followers of Christ, and that is, of course, the Eucharist, the Holy Communion. That breaking of the bread that represents the breaking of the body of Christ for us and the pouring out of the wine that represents the blood that he shed for the remission of our sins. This is also one of the ways that we identify ourselves with him. It's a testimony for all believers to participate in communion because we act out the acceptance of this message into our lives. The story of what Jesus did for us and we remember him by eating the bread and drinking the juice. Okay? So I've asked these guys to come and play a song for us. And as they play, I just want to ask you if you're a believer today, if you would exit your seat and come down the center aisle and, and get a piece of bread and some juice. And then probably to make it easier, if you go back down the side aisles and take your seat. And if you'll just hold the elements until everyone is served and then we'll all take them together at the end. Okay?